Acupuncture is already being integrated into a lot of different hospitals. But just like how is that tradition being passed down, I think we have to look at how this integration is happening. Are we able to fuse the traditional core values with the innovation and the modernization of what's happening in Western medicine so that way we can get the benefits of both? I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. In the late 70s, I owned a VW van. I think if you look up the definition of contraption in the dictionary, you'll see a picture of a VW van. I learned something about mechanics and preventative maintenance from that thing, and beyond that, I learned something about approaching the world of troubleshooting, repair, and the kind of presence required when you're navigating the troubles of complex mechanical systems, along with a thing or two about how my frame of mind could be so dramatically influenced by the angle that I needed to hold a wrench, and how much emotional energy I could waste on the question of, why do they have to make it like that, which was ultimately less useful than the question of, oh, what do I have here in front of me? A sage named John Murr, not the proto-environmentalist, this John Murr, was a mechanical and aerospace engineer. He wrote The Complete Idiot's Guide to Keeping Your Volkswagen Alive. It wasn't just about all the parts of the vehicle and what to do with them. It included the most important part of the repair process, the mind and spirit of the person wiggling the wrench. This is from The Complete Idiot's Guide to Repairing Your Volkswagen. It applies as much to medicine as it does to mechanics. This is a tough one, and it will make or break you. You must do this work with love or you fail. You don't need to think, but you must love. This is one of the reasons that I have nice tools. If I get hung up with maybe a busted knuckle or a busted stud, I feel my tools like art objects or lovely feelies until the rage subsides and sense and love returns. Try it. It works. Being a repair manual, it was, of course, about solving problems. But more than that, it was about inhabiting the problem-solving frame of mind. It invited you into a state of being where problems were curiosity instead of an annoyance, where our own perceptions and sensibilities and state of being, those were essential to the process. I'd go so far as to say you couldn't work on your car without at the same time working on yourself. And I still would too. And it all works more smoothly if you include love. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers 
our terrific sponsors, and for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. One of my favorite things about doing the podcast is that I get to start off with an idea and often enough it quickly shifts into something else. Starting points are like enzymatic reactions. They create connective sparks. They're here and gone. But now, there are new connections that did not previously exist. In this conversation with Mark Petruzzi and Jeffrey Don, I started out with the intention of talking with Mark about what it's like to work in a hospital, how that situation came about, and if it puts constraints on how he practices. The initial idea quickly turned into an investigation of tradition and innovation. And so we brought in Jeffrey Don 
who has been at this East Asian medicine thing for long enough to call it a long time. Mark and Jeffrey have been working together investigating how Japanese acupuncture methods combine with modern understandings of physiology and how osteopathic listening helps to ground the work in physical, palpable reality. We had a conversation in the summer of 2020 discussing chi, blood, and fluids. That's episode number 257. In this episode, we explore the yin and yang of tradition and innovation, what it means to be part of a tradition, and how we can bring our medicine alive in this modern moment. Let's get into it. Mark Petruzzi, Jeffrey Don. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Geological. Thank you. Good to be back. We were together back in the summertime talking about a class that you guys were doing, blood, chi, and fluids. Only acupuncturists would find that to be a really interesting thing. <laughs> yeah. And that was a fantastic conversation where we were talking about some very traditional ideas along with some modern applications, along with looking at some of the osteopathic world and how that kind of rhymes with what we do in some ways intersects. It's a, it's a useful overlay. You guys are really innovative and not just with medicine, but in some ways across generations. You two are citizens of different generations. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I took that class with you guys shortly after we had that conversation, Blood, She, and Fluids. And it was really quite remarkable to be in a room with two people teaching, clearly similar ideas and clearly very different places in life, a very unique opportunity. And so here we are again, in some ways, a conversation across generations, in some ways, looking at our medicine, which is both old and always being reinvented anew in the present moment. Innovation and tradition is the topic. And, and I want to start with you, Mark, because you are not only deeply steeped in some very traditional Japanese acupuncture, but you also work in a modern American integrative hospital, right? So how does that happen? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. It, it happened over time. It happened gradually. And thankfully, it happened in a meandering path because it, it allowed me to kind of really formulate it the way that I would want it to be set up. So I got technically appointed at Stony Brook University Hospital, which is a large teaching hospital out on Long Island, probably the largest one in Suffolk County, at least. And I got appointed there back in 2013. And I had had conversations back and forth with the gentleman who was the interim director of the cancer center. And we had had some mutual patients, and that's how our conversations kind of got started. And so after multiple meetings, as things generally do in those types of hospital settings, we got the ball moving forward, and I got appointed and credentialed, and we wrote out a privilege sheet, and I was able to work with the hospital in making the privilege sheet, so talking about the different modalities that I would be able to utilize at the hospital. And so we got all of that worked out. I got quote-unquote, appointed and credentialed, but then I was never hired. So I was in this state of limbo at the hospital, and I started doing one half a shift a week at the cancer center. 
and they wanted me to treat as like a community physician treating out of the cancer center, which would have been totally fine if anybody knew I was there. They did not, however, except for maybe the one or two people that I kind of had contact with. And so after a little while, it just didn't make sense for me to be at the hospital. I went back, but I kept my privileges. I kept getting reappointed every two years. They had had this large pediatric palliative medicine conference for pediatric oncology a couple of years in a row, and I think it was 2016, 2017, and 2018. So I was able to present in 2016 and 2017, a small little section, and then just kept contact. I would go in when I got called on, and I would do some treatments. And then during COVID, really, I had a little bit of downtime, like many of us did, for a couple of months. And so I started reaching out and touching base with the pediatric oncology group first, because those were the ones that I'd had most direct communication with. I said, it's kind of silly. I'm home. Why don't we start bringing some of these treatments to the hospital? These kids are probably even more stressed. They're not able to have visitors. Just going through their own diagnosis is extremely stressful. So I started going in one day a week on my own time and sitting in on the pediatric grand rounds. So, well, not grand rounds, just their pediatric rounds in the morning. So it was the attending and a resident and a couple of med students. And really my job, as I saw it anyway there, was to kind of identify which patients were most appropriate to get acupuncture and then also start to educate them on what I could do for them and with the traditional Japanese styles and shonishin and teishin and some of the osteopathic manual techniques that I incorporate with those treatments. And so for almost a year, I just went in a couple hours a week and would do a couple of treatments here or there and learn some things about the interworkings of the hospital and what we can and can't bill and other things. And then I was able to find out that you can't bill inpatient acupuncture at a hospital, which was very interesting to me. And you would think 20 years into practice, I would know that. But I didn't realize that because I was like, well, we can bill outpatient. Why can't we bill inpatient? Those are probably two really different worlds, aren't they? At least from within the insurance purview, right? Right. So I was able to get a program. I gave in a proposal to the hospital and we brought it to some of the donors for the children's hospital. And one of them graciously accepted. And so now I have two day a week section where I go in and treat basically all day. And I'm able to provide acupuncture for all the children at the children's hospital, no cost to them or their families. And it's really wonderful. And it's nice because I can go in now and I'm also in the hospital and I'm working with pediatric oncology and a lot of the other specialties, but I'm also kind of on my own. So I can provide the treatment in the traditional style, or what we are viewing is the traditional style of how I like to practice, and there's really no pushback. So I'm doing my traditional Japanese acupuncture and shonishin and teishin and incorporating these osteopathic manual techniques with these kids just like I would at my office. And the only thing that I'm doing differently maybe is Instead of the tonetsuku, the rice grain moxa that I'm actually lighting, I'm using an electric moxa tool that uh, Funimizu Sensei had introduced me to. That is just like a little ceramic tipped, almost hot tation. Mm. So at least I get maybe 35 to 40% of the benefit of the moxa with that far infrared heat. And some would argue more. So, but that's the long winded version of how it came about. So you were initially drawn to this. Why were you initially drawn to this? What drew you into it in the first place? Because what I hear you saying is you started there going through some conversations. 
you got yourself some privileges, but you didn't have a job. You're like hanging out. You're like the person who wants to be a monk at the temple. And like they do at all temples, they're like, get the hell out of here. Like, you want to be a monk? Get out of here. Right. You got to like sit on the temple steps for however long until they finally take you in. It sounds a little bit like that, that you spent some time cultivating relationships before a paid position showed up. All things told, it was a 10-year process from the first meetings to when the program actually got up and running. So it did take a little time. I kind of always had been drawn to, and maybe these patients have always been drawn to me as well, working with some chronic disease and serious illness and cancer. You know, I've done a lot of work with other elements too, with athletics and things, but I see a lot of patients that are undergoing these very severe chronic degenerative diseases. I think in my humble and admittedly biased opinion, I feel like the style of acupuncture that I practice is probably very well suited for that. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it is about your style in particular that makes it maybe more friendly to people that are running hospitals than and maybe, a, I don't know, a Dr. Tan style or a TCM or, or something like that. Hmm. Well, I don't know if my style is more friendly to people running the hospitals, but I think it's more friendly to the patients in the hospitals. Mm-hmm. So the style, you know, we would say traditional Japanese acupuncture style, which is really, at least in the style that I practice, is an amalgam of a solid foundation of meridian therapy. And then I incorporate other elements that are influenced by Sawada style and different extraordinary vessel applications and Funimizu's Tation techniques. But really in the, the base is more kind of a Shudo and Okada style of acupuncture. But it's a very gentle style of acupuncture. And it's very much about reading the body through touch. So as complicated as their symptoms can come about, I can just allow their body to guide me. And because it's so gentle and I'm really constantly assessing with every technique that I'm doing, I'm able to really optimize the treatment for the patient on the table that day. Because with very sick patients, it's extremely important that you're able to monitor and know maybe when you've nudged the body in the right direction or when you've nudged the body too much. Yes. Okay. The hospital, how do they see you? What do they make of someone like you? Because look, we're a little bit out of the box with the work that we do. Mm. And even though lots of people have heard about acupuncture over the years, a hospital setting still seems to me, and, and maybe just because I've not worked in one, but it seems to me it's almost like the last, is it the last bastion or is it, it it's like the central fortress mm. of conventional medicine. Yeah. Well, so I think there's kind of, there's two elements in the hospital setting that you're kind of working through. There's the administration and then there is the doctors. And so I have more communication directly now that I've gotten through the administration levels and I already have a program that's up and running. Most of my interaction is with the doctors. And so that's more about education and communication than anything else. And it's being able to, you know, so I practice a traditional Japanese style, what I would view that. But I also incorporate a lot of osteopathic manual techniques and being able to integrate these two things, and we can have a discussion on whether we think integration is positive or negative, but being able to integrate that, you have to, Jeffrey, I was having a conversation with Jeffrey about this just a couple of days ago. He had said that, you know, you need to be bilingual and bicultural in terms of your ability to communicate and speak each other's language. 
And so I think that's the most important thing uh, is that you can bring in what the traditional elements that you're doing because there's obviously a clear advantage in certain elements of what we would view as our traditional Japanese acupuncture or traditional East Asian medicine approach. And then there are some benefits to being able to talk in kind of the lingo of biomedicine and modern anatomy and et cetera, et cetera. Jeffrey, I think that's a really astute perception that it's not just a matter of being bilingual, it's a matter of being bicultural. Yes. <laughs> I think, and we see Mark's persistence, how long it took him to persisting to be able to get inside the institution. And it required not only being bicultural and being bilingual, but actually getting results that the doctors could see. There's changes. I don't understand it, mm -hmm. but I, they actually could see observable positive changes. And that would open them up more to then the bicultural, bilingual explanations of what he's doing. Just saying, oh, yeah, I, I calmed down the liver wind type of explanation won't work in that context. Yeah, I don't think it works with our patients either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mark, what was it like when you would do something and the doctors around you would be scratching their heads? Like, what did we just see? Can you give us an example of, of one of those moments where something happened in the work that you were doing and, and the doctor standing around went, wait a minute, we don't understand this, but we can see that something has happened. Yeah. Thankfully, there's been a few different examples. So it's been nice because it, again, it drums up conversation and it brings up their curiosity, especially when it's something that they maybe can't fully explain. So uh, we, there was one patient, a 10-year-old boy, and he was brought into the hospital and he had this very strange fairly acute onset of this kind of severe peripheral neuropathy. So he had severe numbness, tingling in his hands, in his feet, pain anytime he had weight bearing in his feet to the point where he couldn't stand. I mean, he basically was carried into the ER. They brought him in. He was, you know, he was a general 10-year-old athletic boy. He didn't have comorbidities and he's playing soccer and just woke up one day and he had this, which obviously is very jarring to him and his parents. And so he went through the whole gamut of diagnostic imaging, and they did a full ortho workup and a full neuro workup, and nothing was showing. But he obviously has this numbness and tingling, and then he, he literally can't stand on his feet without severe pain. So one of the attendings, I was on call that day, I was at the hospital, and one of the pediatric hospitalists had kind of found me and said, give me a little bit of the rundown. We're kind of at a loss here. There's not much more that we can really do for him in the hospital, you know, they feel like he needed to have more follow-ups, maybe with like a rheumatology or something outside. But the parents obviously were not very happy with that because there's something going on and they can't find it. So she's like, you know, kind of like, oh, you want to give it a go? <laughs> so I was able to go into the room. And what's nice is with all these different conflicting, confounding symptoms, right, we can just allow the body to guide us. So I was able to take his pulse and palpate his abdomen and palpate along the channels. And then I started to add in some of the chi blood and fluids diagnostics that we utilize with assessing at the kidney three posterior tibial artery and then sinking into the neurological tissue around it and reading the lymph that goes through that. And then I went out into the popliteal area and then I checked in around the back in Grinfeld's triangle where we have five different nerves that are coming out of that bladder 52 area 
and I can track and see how it's related to areas going into the leg. And so at least from that systematic presentation, he was what we would call a liver kill pattern, which is not surprising. He has wind, right? We just, Jeffrey was just talking about wind. He's got wind symptoms that are, are kind of very odd, at least for a 10-year-old boy. And so he was a liver deficiency pattern. And most of his progression was then through the gallbladder and Xiaoyang channels with a lot of pain and restriction. And it was more of the left side. He had more restriction on the left side. His left kidney three pulse was weaker. He had more fascial tension or perineural tension in the common peroneal nerve at that bladder 39 area going into the posterior gallbladder 34 and that lateral femoral cutaneous nerve on the left. So there was definitely all things that were tracking, at least to me, that made sense. And he'd already been poked and prodded all day, so he didn't want any more needles, which I completely understood. So we just did a tation treatment and I did a very basic little work on the abdomen. I treated him with some liver tonification points, but I actually I used liver five and kidney four instead of the traditional maybe liver eight, kidney ten, because I wanted to start to tap into the connecting channels and the low vessels and also start to influence the bladder and the gallbladder where he was having some reactivity. And then I just did a couple of tation points on some Xiaoyang zones like gallbladder thirty one and thirty four and forty one, but just very light tation work. And then I did some neural work and working on the fascial tension around the nerves coming out in that left bladder 52 area, coming into the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve around gallbladder 31, and then connecting it down the leg all the way into the foot. And then I finished with some lymph drainage therapy. Because of all that fascial and neural tension, he had just a slight subcutaneous fluid accumulation in and around the ankles, probably nothing that they would even note from a Western medical exam, but it was definitely palpable to me. And so I started doing that. And actually, it was interesting because I did the limp work on the right leg first, and then he had to pee. <laughs> and he needed uh, his mom to help him into the bathroom. And so he came back, and I asked him, I said, you know, it's kind of early yet, but just curious, did you see any difference when you stepped on your right foot to when you stepped on your left foot? And he thought about it, and he said, oh, so it's actually it's a little less painful. I said, oh, that's good, but, you know, just relax. And he finished the work on the left leg and just talked to him. I explained to the mom the findings that I had. So, and how it could relate to maybe some of the symptoms. And she said, actually, that the, at least the orthopedic doctor was able to tell her that there was more weakness on that left side, which made sense to me. And so I left, this was about early afternoon. And when I came back at the end of the day, it's just huge relief on the boy's face. He said, I'm actually a lot better, you know, and the mom was very appreciative, but she actually at least felt validated that there was something going on. And so when I was able to describe that to the attending the following time when I ran into her, they were pretty, I don't know, impressed or blown away, but they're like, just what? That's incredible, right? So, but it's really just being able to integrate these different diagnostic tools from our traditional perspective. Well, I listened to you describing this. And what's lovely is on one hand, you're thinking, of course, as an acupuncturist, but you're also kind of thinking as an anatomist. Mm. Right, I listened to you talking about the nerves and the state of the nerves and what's happening with the blood flow and what's happening with the fluid. And all this makes sense from a Chinese medicine point or Japanese medicine, whatever you want to call what we do. Hmm. It makes sense. You can get that, right? I think all of us can kind of get that if, if, if we want to tune into it. And at the same time, you're speaking a language. I would think you could easily speak a language, very translatable into the conventional medicine community of well, here's this nerve complex, and we have these restrictions here, 
that causes this blockage there. Downstream, we see this numbness. It was very easy to talk about our medicine in a functional way when you've got that kind of vocabulary and those kind of landmarks that everybody agrees on. Mm. Well, and what we all know is that I'm just saying the same thing, right? but I'm just, as Jeffrey said, I'm giving it to them in their language. And I'm allowing them, you know, so that way I could explain it. Because if I said there was a liver kill pattern with Xiaoyang channel jitsu that was leading to nebose internal wind, they would just, oh, yeah, it's, it's kind of voodoo kind of talk. Yeah. Right? But if you could just translate it, it still means the same thing, right? It's just like in the qi, blood, and fluids when we're talking about it, right? All of these various, sometimes very beautiful diagnostic filters and all the different aspects of East Asian medicine that are describing things. But when it comes down to it, there either there's an imbalance in the production or the circulation of qi, blood, and fluids. And if we can have some type of way to monitor that and to either help that production and that circulation, then we're going to be able to help with their imbalance. Yeah, it's a great story. Jeffrey, you look like you've got something you want to say. Yeah, I'm just uh, thinking about how we think of what tradition is and how we are trying to fuse or integrate some new development. So the, the idea of what really is tradition, there's something in, I think, uh, our cultural way that thinks that antiquity gives more validation. I know that I'm particularly influenced by Volker Scheid, the uh, medical anthropologist practitioner. And when he goes back to 17th century and tracks it in China among the schools to the modern development, he sees tradition as something which is open and dynamic and not particularly static. That tradition is, he says, has to be recreated every generation anew to fit the changes that are contemporary. So that even Dan Bensky says, we really don't have any idea how Wang Di Neqing acupuncture was practiced. We have hints. We have to make sense of it in terms of our contemporary understanding. And that this idea of a fixed sacred text gives us a guideline, but it has to be made intelligent for how we are living now. The way that we live in this 21st century has so little to do with what happened 2,000 years ago in terms of diet and lifestyle and environment, that we have to always be continually adapting the tradition to the needs of the present. And there is a psychological thing that happens among all of us that, again, that antiquity gives more validation. And I'm not at all criticizing here, for example, uh, TCM. But notice how they call it traditional Chinese medicine. There's nothing clearly traditional about it. It was a formulated and created anew in the 1950s and 1960s because of the contemporary needs of China at that time. And here I, I may make a distinction. When Japan modernized in the late 1870s, 
And through the 1920s, it was the impact of Western biomedicine that became dominant. And the Japanese response was very different than the Chinese response. During the Republican period in China, all of a sudden, there were only academies and individual teachers that had their own lineages, family-based. There was no uniform style of Chinese acupuncture. There were many styles that were very varied and very different. Same thing in Japan. And what happened then in the beginning of the 20th century, suddenly the Chinese practitioners realized, wow, we're being pushed out. We need to have a response to this Western medicine that was the beginnings of developing a national medicine for the very first time, the Guoyi. And in China, they don't talk about classical medicine. So that when Mao Zedong and the Chinese, they had, I think, at least three different needs. One, in their, the, the War of Independence, they didn't have Western medicines in great supply. So they needed to go back to what they had available. And two, they wanted a national response to Western culture. And that became that division about Western medicine versus Chinese medicine. So that was a national value. And third, during that period, the development and creation of TCM was for the purpose of third world acupuncture. They wanted a global medicine based on these revised traditional ways. Now, what happened in Japan, the Japanese government didn't care about the traditional medicine. So they just said, oh, you need to be licensed. They ripped away herbal medicine from the Japanese uh, holism. And they started saying, yeah, if you want to practice shiatsu, you want to practice acupuncture, it has to be based on Western medicine. And even today, most acupuncture schools in Japan are still teaching anatomy and physiology. The Western sciences is the foundation. So that Japan never developed a national medicine that's equivalent to TCM, which had a political impetus. And then what happened is that I think the Japanese were very integrative in a way because they didn't have this national attachment to tradition. So when you look at the late Tokugawa period, the imperial physician Ishizaka is mixing with the European doctors and saying, wow, these anatomy books are incredible. Let's see how I can integrate these two medicines. And so that I think Japanese medicine has tended to be much more integrative. And you study with Shudo Sensei, he does orthopedic testing. He doesn't see a conflict. And so I think we have an issue between a traditions which are open and expansive and traditions which tend to be more closed. And in our work, I would say I'd see that among the Toyohari practitioners. It, came, it comes out of the meridian therapy, but as a political statement with how they teach and train, it's very closed. And there's only one way of doing it. They have not integrated, let's say, Western medicine techniques. They can, 
but they don't. So that I think that what we are looking at is a, a tradition, and this again goes back to Volker Scheid, is that tradition is always adapting new things based on cultural changes of the era and letting go of other things. There is no tradition which is, even if we, we take the sacred text, let's say, of the Bible, you look what happened between the Catholic interpretation and the Protestant Reformation. And that was a political stunt more than anything else. That's right. Yes. And so what I think when we look at political power in the definition of tradition that sets the standards, gives tests, and validates skill certifications, it's inherently a political thing. For example, that Mark and I represent by this fusion, this resonance with the osteopathic way, we don't have any political dog in this game. Here is another realm of knowledge, integrated as you experience it, as you see fit. And that, I think, that's what having a vital tradition rather than a static tradition is involved. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind, and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Wow, there's a lot there. I want to comment on just some of it. Yeah, please. So first, you talk about our old texts, which we can worship in a very fetishized way. I like what you say about, oh, we have hints. We can go look at these old books. It's not that we're trying to live the Nanjing, or we're trying to live the uh, Shang Hanlun, we're looking to these texts as hints. Here are some things about medicine that people in the past found helpful enough to write down and pass along and continue to pass along. Probably something helpful there. And thinking about it as a hint is different than thinking about it as, well, here's a truth from the ages because it's just plain flipping old. Mm -hmm. I know that when I hear you use that word hint and I stand in that place of, oh, it's a hint. It's a nudge. It's saying, look at this and figure this out in this moment now. That's really different than this is truth from a source that's smarter than me. 
Yeah, this is exactly what actually they did in Japan in the 1930s and 1940s because the education of the、uh, in the schools became more and more Western dominated, and then the originators felt that、well, there's something really, in a sense, spiritual, the fundamental that Western medicine was so reductionistic that it was losing the holism that is the foundations of our medicine. So Yangista and others went back to the classics and said, "We have to mine the classics. We have to go back and find what is clinically useful right now." And that was the basis of the development of meridian therapy. And then I think after World War II, when there was so much destruction and deficiency, and Shudo Sensei talks about the modern lifestyles having much more deficiency due to Insomnia and changes in food and people's lifestyles and just sitting. That we see the innovation in meridian therapy in this case of finding more and more gentle techniques using thinner and thinner gauge needles, doing more and more contact needling, doing things like the tashin going back that was originally there. So this is a very innovative and open response to understanding. The contemporary environmental sociological decision that affected. Should、uh, you read Shudo Sensei's earlier books, and he's using a, a 36 gauge needle and doing 40 millimeter insertions. And now Shudo Sensei is doing much more his super superficial rotation and contact needling and, and golden tashin works.、So、very dynamic. He's not. Staying just with what was, because the society has changed and changed his ideas of how he needed to treat the people he's seen right now. There's another phrase that you used: attachment to tradition. Now I'm going to raise my hand as somebody guilty of this, especially early on in my career. This idea that well, acupuncture has been around for thousands of years. Therefore, it must be useful and helpful. And again, I look at my earlier years of practice and and how I conceived of the work. Leaning, I was very much leaning on that idea that it's been around a long time. I get to be a piece of that lineage. I let myself off the hook. We all did. <laughs>、mm. Yeah, you too. Let myself off the hook of really understanding it in this moment in my own experience, using the language of Chinese East Asian medicine in my own head, but being able to speak to my patients in a very everyday, ordinary language that they could understand. At a certain point, I realized trying to give my patients a Chinese medicine one on one lesson、mm-hmm. was extremely counterproductive, and that makes me think about. What you also said that tradition can be open or closed, and you gave us the examples of Japan. You can close it down or you can open it up, and that has to do, I suspect, with where we find ourselves in the culture at any given moment.、Mm. It's interesting, you know. They even looking at the general ideas of tradition, and what Jeffrey said that traditions are reinventions, right? They take ideas or practices and then. Kind of reform them to meet the contemporary needs and practices of the people now. Traditionally, there was these ancient nine needles. We learned this in school, but none of us worked with many of these ancient nine needles. 
it's got honed down and honed down, and most of us work with maybe one of them, right? The filiform needle is the main one that's utilized. And then now, as maybe more deficiencies are arising once again, we become more sedentary. We're working more with electronics. We're in front of a computer screen, diet, nutrition, everything that plays into that that makes us maybe less stable and strong than maybe we were in the 1300s, right? Now we start to see this reintroduction of a few of these ancient nine needles and the development of the tation or reintroduction of the tation and a lot of different tation techniques and shonishin techniques. And it's the classic idea of shuhari, right? It's you're studying the tradition initially, right? And you're doing it because this is what they did. This is what my master did. And that's the initial stage. And then you start in the ha stage, you start to maybe pull in some other ideas and other things that you've learned from other areas until then maybe in the third decade of practice, if we're following the traditional lineage, right, we're going into that re-stage where now we're performing a medicine that's completely our own and completely intertwined with the current times. And so we see this usage and being able to, again, now maybe explain that tradition you're saying, talking to your patients from maybe a more kind of one-on-one modern anatomical perspective instead of the traditional channel connections. But we can talk about when we're doing the stroking along the channel, what's actually happening, we can say from a chi and blood and fluids perspective, or we could say what's happening from a physiological fascial perspective with piezoelectric discharges and releases of oxytocin from the brain and how that's absorbed into the bloodstream and how that affects different neurotransmitters because they're all, again, the same thing, but it's following that tradition and then maybe reintroducing that to meet the needs of the current population. We're back to being not just bilingual and bicultural, but somehow these curious beings that go across time and culture. Mm -hmm. Mm. There's a quote that a friend of mine sent me. I don't know if I'm going to get it exactly right. I think it was Gustav Mahler who it's attributed to, but who knows on the internet these days. The quote goes like this, tradition is the preservation of flame, not the worship of ashes. Yeah, I like that a lot because the fire represents a core orientation. I would add another metaphor to that in terms of the ashes. If I think of the tree, that the roots are really the origins, let's say, of our acupuncture and its holism. And the trunk represents the historical accumulations of different schools and ideas. But in the contemporary, it's the branches Mm. that are the flowers that have to be adapted to what season we are living in right now and who we're dealing with. And some of those branches have very tight, closed buds. And those are, I would call, the more fixed and rigid traditions. And other of these flowerings are very open and responsive of what makes more sense now, both theoretically and interpersonally and technically so that uh, our medicine is not uniform. It's never been uniform. We have so many different styles of acupuncture, and some have completely upended the tradition. If you're going to do 
dry needling or motor point e-stim. You don't need to take pulses. You don't need to do abdominal diagnosis, and yet still part of our tradition. So I think it's the realization that we have a, a hydra multi-headed, uh, it's very variable who chooses what to be in the context. And being in the context of a hospital, uh, Mark has been brilliant to how he's been able to maintain that continuity of a non-Western approach but fuse it so the doctors say, wow, I still don't understand it, but I understand some of what you're telling me. Go ahead and do more of it. <laughs> and I think it's in the how you're describing the open tradition as opposed to a closed tradition. It's also how is that tradition being practiced? Or probably a broader question is, what does it mean to practice a traditional medicine? Because are we in this living open tradition that's constantly changing and shifting with the needs of the patient? Are you following this lineage of information that's been transmitted that you're able to then move forward with and evolve and adapt? Or are you practicing a very closed tradition? Maybe it's even something that you just read in books and now you're adhering to this point protocol layout that while it was done 2,500 years ago, and this was done for this specific thing, and this is the traditional way, so this is what I'm going to do. So, you know, that's it's an interesting kind of even thought of, well, what does it mean if I'm practicing traditional medicine? That's a great question. As we're sitting here and having this conversation, we are indeed practicing the medicine. It's got its roots that go way, way back. I, I love your image, Jeffrey, of, of the roots in the trunk of the tree, and then the most enlivened, maybe not the most enlivened part, but the part that's most interactive with the outer environment are out at the edges of the branches. Mm -hmm. That's where we are. So on one hand, we are indeed informed deeply by the medicine that's come down to us. And how we take that and make that an enlivened exchange with the people that we work with, well, you know what, guys? That's up to us, and we all do it differently. And it, it seems to me, even though we've got all these amazing books on medicine, and we do, and it's wonderful, but it seems that in some fundamental way, for the medicine to arise, it has to arise anew in every generation, in every practitioner. It's like it's discovered anew by the work that we do in our clinics. Exactly. Well said. Yeah. And I think keeping with that first metaphor that you brought up with the flame and adhering to the flame and not the ashes, I think it's following that flame and, and the main ideals of maybe what it is to be a traditional East Asian medicine practitioner and following those core tenets. And then now then growing that and letting that enliven in each of us. And it's going to enliven in each of us in a different way. But being able to still adhere to, I'm still, I'm doing Taishin, I'm doing Shonishin on these little kids in the hospital. And I'm manipulating the points. I'm looking to balance out the channels through the pulse taking and palpating the abdomen. So I still feel that is a traditional practice that I'm applying. And I'm able to adhere and keep that tradition, but still bring in that integrative aspect and that understanding. And that's where I think some of the argument comes in about integration and whether that's good or bad is it because are we losing the soul of our medicine or not and i think that's really where the kind of trick is is to keep that soul and that tradition 
at the same time as being able to integrate the new and incoming information. So, okay, this is a provocative phrase, the soul of the medicine. Like, what the hell is that? Hmm. It'll be different for everyone, but one we could say a general principle is holism. Right? We're, see we're seeing the body as a unit, and we're treating the entire being, and we know that we can influence one aspect, and it's going to have an influence on the whole mm. instead of breaking things down. We know that there is this channel system in the body. We know that there is chi. Chi is a core principle of our medicine. We're working with chi. Now, what chi is, and we can get into a very well, much longer discussion on that, but we're manipulating chi to influence its circulation of chi and blood through the channels to bring about balance. I think that's a very basic, holistic soul of the medicine, at least. And in acupuncture, you know, the essence of acupuncture is that it's a channel-based system. Jeffrey, what's your sense? Yeah, I'm thinking that, for example, that Wang Zhuyi said there are really three essential treasures in our medicine. The first is the concepts of yin-yang, this dynamic, reciprocal, holism. It's not just one or the other. They represent a holism, a dynamic process. Number two is the idea of the channel system. It's the whole body. It's another way of thinking of the holism. And the third is the, the zong fu, that we can affect the functioning of the core organs by working on the channel system to create a holistic response. So I think that doesn't really change. For me, that represents, in a sense, uh, the distilled essence and how you then work with the channel system or how you understand the zong fu. It's still in, in terms of excess and deficiency, the simplest way of differentiating yin and yang. I think those really represent the core values and that then the manifestation and the practice of it has lots of 10,000 flowers uh, evolve, you know. Well, be careful. The last time someone said, let a thousand flowers bloom, you know, there was trouble in China. <laughs> <laughs> but I get your point. Yes, these fundamental principles, and I think if I was to describe it, Yes, we could talk yin and yang. Yes, we can talk the zang fu. There's something else in there, and I'm not even sure what to call it, but there's something about a kind of intelligence yes. that is within our body. When I hear you explore that, Michael, it makes me think of heaven, earth, human. Mm. That's the holism. We are part of a, an environment. We are a part of a, a global unity. And that, that's what Western medicine has been so reductionistic. There's certainly trends anew within Western medicine to try to recapture that holism. And I think osteopathic uh, intelligence is part of that. They want to go back to the holism. They want to go back. Let's focus on positive and strengths rather than on disease. Let's not be disease-oriented. How do we make more positive responses? One of the things that I think I've learned from practicing this medicine is that we can use what's working well mm. to help take care of what's not working so well. And 
I grew up in the West. I have a Western mind. I'm never going to leave that behind. I live in this modern day, and I'm not trying to get rid of my modern thinking. I'm trying to open it, soften it, maybe make room like the hospital that Mark is working in, make room for some other things, even if I don't understand it. And yeah, I used to often go about my work like, oh, there's this thing that's broken, and I have to fix that broken thing. And if I would just take the light off of the broken thing and look at the whole, as you're just talking about, and the other piece that something in our medicine, I think it's fundamental, and maybe we don't talk about it enough, and Western medicine has no, no sense of this, is the Zheng Qi, mm-hmm. right? The Zheng, the upright, the correct, the stuff that's working fine, and using that to help take care of the rest. Like you guys were saying, it's a completely interconnected system. And so we can take the parts that function well and move that proper functioning into the areas that need some help. I think it's a unique contribution that our East Asian medicine brings to the healing world. Very much so. It's kind of sad in some ways, I think, to see how that is in some ways being lost in China itself. When I was back in Beijing about five years ago and uh, invited to sit in on their the clinic and then asked to demonstrate, they didn't even take pulses. They were just pure. Essentially, I think a, a lot of the contemporary TCM doesn't have the herbal foundation. It's mostly trigger point acupuncture. And uh, they themselves have been so reductionist affected by the their integration of Western medicine and probably the dilemma of a communist approach, which doesn't allow for the concept of, of real chi and spirit. And so that I think, in a way, this is an interesting way for me, how Western culture is bringing that back again into China because of their own historical development. I don't know how you've seen that in your experiences in China or even Taiwan. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, I can tell you I met some wonderful acupuncturists when I was in Beijing, Dr. Wang Jui in particular. I can also tell you that some of the absolute worst acupuncture I've ever had 
came from both China and Taiwan. And yeah, so just because it's from the East doesn't mean that the practitioners were necessarily practicing it in the way that we are talking about. They're, they're being informed by something else. So there's that. Something that I did hear Dr. Wang Jui say, which at the time I wasn't so sure about, but at this point, I think I am more sure about, was that the West might be the salvation mm -hmm. of East Asian medicine. That in, in some ways it's being lost in China, as we've just described. We've been talking about the kind of changes it's gone through in Japan. And again, we're looking at here is how does, do these principles arise in our current moment? And, and how do we interact with that and utilize that to help people? And one of the wonderful things, I think, about the time in which we find ourselves living is that East Asian medicine is all over the world. Mm-hmm. And it has found fertile soil in many, many different places. Here in the United States, there are, at this point, generations of acupuncturists that are non-Chinese, that are regular you know, Western Americans. We have multiple generations. There's multiple generations in Europe, right? And we see various traditions coming out of there as well. And so, again, we have these principles that go back a long ways, they wind up in someone like Mark Petruzzi, hmm. who talks to doctors at a hospital. Because of your interest in doing the work you do, and especially working with kids, and maybe just because you like talking to doctors and you like hanging out with them, I don't know. But you've managed to find yourself now in this milieu, a place for practice, where you can do your traditional medicine. Yeah. And interesting when we're speaking of those core tenets, you know, Jeffrey said in something that we didn't delve into too much, in a, but the aspect of spirit, right? And the interaction with the environment around us, that heaven, human, earth, and this interaction, you see that especially when you're working with kids because they are so young, right? And their chi is so volatile. And you, you have this influence. I just, I was working with a little six month old in the hospital and so we're talking playing with him and then i just start doing some tation on his arm and all that you just see his eyes kind of soften and he laid back on his pillow and the dad was like is that possible do, do they relax so quickly with this all the time and it's i said well sometimes they do but it's this there is this spirit interaction i had a, an 11 day old baby it was probably the youngest baby that i treated at the hospital and so far anyway and so i was working on this baby and had probably suspected pyloric stenosis where they were just continuously vomiting and I'm treating the baby and you know the baby relaxed and ended up going to sleep and then I treated the mom who was in there and the grandma was in the room so it was this whole family dynamic and showing the profoundness of our medicine the baby just was showing instantation stopped vomiting but I came back in the next day or it was two days later because I'm in there Tuesdays and Thursdays and the attending who was on call that time pulled me over and said just want to tell you, Grammy sought me out, and she said that you completely changed the energy in the room. And she said the baby relaxed, she said my daughter relaxed, and then so I relaxed. It's that element of spirit, and that element that there is this larger interaction that's happening more than we think maybe just at that one point. And I think that's especially illustrated when you're working with kids. 
you can see it on the child. And if the parent are in the room, often the parents remark like they feel like they're getting treated as well. Yeah, that's beautiful. And a big yes to underscore that. There's the person that we're treating. Let's not forget that person's connected to a family, and especially if that person is a, a child. And taking care of the child, you're also taking care of the mother. One of the ways of taking care of the child might also be to take care of the mother. I had a elderly couple, and he brought his wife in. His wife had all kinds of stuff. He's such a sweet guy. Um, and he'd bring his wife in to be treated. And at one point, I realized this poor guy really needs some help because his wife is not well and his wife is incredibly demanding. And I'm there treating his wife, but really, this guy could use a little help. So at one point, as his wife was being treated, I, I would take him aside and go, you know what? You look a little like you could just use a little relaxation. How about I just put a few needles in your ear? Let me put a few needles here. Let me put a few needles there. I would just treat him. Mm. as part of treating his wife because his wife needed lots of attention and he was the one giving it to her and he was so depleted. So one of the best ways I could take care of the wife was to take care of him. That was instructive as I'm thinking about it. I'm glad we're having this conversation because sometimes I do see families. I'm thinking maybe I actually should make sure that I treat both of them as, as part of the treatment because it is such an integrated, familiar whole. That's one of the core tenets, right? This holism. And it expands beyond just the patient. Yeah. You know, I, I really appreciate this conversation, you guys, because this is something that's been in the back of my mind and kind of something I, you know, like air quotes, no. But in having this conversation, I realized that I, I've been missing some opportunities that could be really helpful if I would just treat the other person who's bringing a person in as part of what's going on. That might be really helpful. Yeah, in a way, we treat the individual, but you also treat the field. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's just on a, a very materialistic point of view, like uh, how's the lighting? What other noises are happening? There's the whole field, which is critical to a holistic response. We just don't think of, oh, yeah, they've got a sprained back and I'm going to do my bladder 23. There's so much more. How are they on the table? How are they moving in the room? It's a much more holistic, complex, unexplored and pretty open way. That, and that's the dilemma, I think, in a way for, let's say, contemporary practice where high volume that the way we practice is so influenced by modern needs of what is a successful practice. How many people do you see in a day? How many people, the hospitals, I have uh, colleagues that work for Kaiser, and they are very restricted, but they're supposed to see uh, 20 or 30 people a day, but they can't do the whole treatment. They just have to be very focused on where is the pain, only do the points for the pain. So yeah, we need to be expansive to be able to practice our medicine in a resonant way that Mark does. He hasn't had to compromise the style of, of practice in a very different environment that would probably say, oh, you got to work faster. You got to be more focused. You, yeah, this chi stuff, forget that. Let's just work on the, uh, the pain. 
Mark, it seems that you're working in, in an environment that's very supportive of working in the traditional ways. And are you in contact with other practitioners, maybe working in different hospitals and, and have a sense of how that might be for them? Because I suspect that different hospitals and different programs, for that matter, and hospitals might have very different requirements for what they need from their practitioner. Like Jeffrey was just saying, he's got friends that work at Kaiser. You got to see 30 patients. So come on, buck, 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 let's go. Yeah. I've been in contact with a few different practitioners. I think a couple of elements that make me kind of very fortunate in the avenue that I'm in is one, it's a children's hospital. And I feel like in general, the children's hospitals are much more open to integration and to innovation and to other things that can really, anything that they can do to help the children they're going to do. I think that should be for everybody in a hospital, right? But that definitely is brought out more, those feelings, because, you know, everybody kind of, their heart melts when they see sick children. So I think that's an element of it. But even in speaking with different practitioners, I know a few in the different children's hospitals. And another element that is kind of beneficial to me is that I'm still technically not employed by the hospital. I am working through their research foundation. Basically, I had a proposal in that got accepted through donations. Now, I know other hospitals work like that, especially in the children's hospitals. But then there's, I guess there's more oversight. So I've been in touch with a couple of them. But I think there just has to be more discussion and education too. I think part of it is seeing that it works. But the other part is that they have just pre-existing theories that don't always make sense. Like I heard doctors from other institutions say, oh, well, I don't think we could do Tation here because they're worried about cross-contamination, which I'm like, well, one, we're not inserting any needles. This is just on the skin. And so, you know, I posed the question to them and I said, well, do the doctors change their stethoscope every time they go into a new room? Are they using a different one? And he actually thought about it and he said, well, no, that's a good point. You know, it's just it's just things that they have this in mind because they're so locked into their Western medical model. And part of it is that they just don't understand exactly how we're working. So I think part of the education that has to come about. But maybe this will start to move the needle forward. I did just do a, a talk at the hospital and there was about, it was over 100 medical professionals that attended. Some may have been medical students, but there was a lot of attendings and residents and nurse practitioners. And I talked about the pediatric styles in particular intation and what makes them different and a little bit of moxibustion and a little bit of some of these osteopathic manual techniques. So I think it's just like anything. It's the ball has to get kind of rolling in that direction. Acupuncture is already being integrated into a lot of different hospitals. But just like how is that tradition being passed down, I think we have to look at how this integration is happening. Are we able to fuse the traditional core values with the innovation and the modernization of what's happening in Western medicine so that way we can get the benefits of both? Wow. I just want to underscore that. Acupuncture is being used in a lot of hospitals, but that traditional sense of how we work that might be something else again. And I'm hoping that all y'alls that have been listening to this conversation will take this to heart about the tradition that we practice is, is something that arises in the work that we do in this time. 
regardless of the circumstance that we're in, because we can take those principles and unfold them anywhere that we happen to be working. You might have to be a little bit persistent, like Mark here, and being able to do that in, in a place like where you're working now, or, well, you're not working there. Well, you are working there, but you're not paid from them. It's an odd situation. I kind of am, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah, you are, but you're not. Again, I find that to be the good news, not the bad news, because what it says is there are all kinds of opportunities if you open yourself to looking at where is there help to help me get done what I want to get done in this situation. It's not necessarily a job. It could be a foundation. It could be people wanting to do a research project. There's all kinds of reasons why people might want to see people like us working in, in that kind of an environment. I think the challenge is not to be reductionistic because that is the specialty of Western medicine is to become more and more subspecialized and then they lose the interconnection between these specialties. And so for me, the dilemma of, for example, dry needling or just a trigger point E stim can be really effective, but how do we do that and keep the tradition that acknowledges spirit and holism of treating the whole person, not just the particular area where the affliction is manifesting? I suspect that's up to each individual practitioner and how we see who we are and how we work. Mm -hmm. There could very well be people who don't even think about chi at all, but simply look at where are the nerves, and I'm simply stimulating certain nerves and getting a kind of endocrinological change in the body. You could see that too. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of where it maybe circles back to what we spoke about at the beginning of the conversation with being able to be bilingual and bicultural, and even just in the discussions of the fusion of tradition and innovation like we were talking about with the Chi Blood and Fluids work that Jeffrey and I are doing with those classes. And basically, we're taking the traditional kind of profound understandings that the East Asian medicine community has laid out, but then we're adding this more nuanced specificity to not only what those Chi Blood and Fluids are, but maybe how to manually appreciate those individual qualities, because they each have their own individual qualities, but also how they're interrelating to the, the rest of the body. And if you can kind of fuse those two, then we can talk chi and channels, or we can talk lymph and nerve and blood and endocrine relationships. Well, that sounds like spirit with a vocabulary. <laughs> I like, I like mm -hmm. that. <laughs> well, gentlemen, anything else that needs to be said before we wind this down for today? Well, another thing that Volker Scheid talked about is when we think about, let's say, classical Chinese medicine, that this was the a scholar, physician, Confucian scholar, physician, elite culture. They're the ones that wrote the books that we still have access to. And that it was a different kind of medicine. He uses the metaphor of food. This was hot cuisine. In this season, we'll go to this province because these uh, 
foods are happening and we'll go at the full moon and we'll share poetry and we'll look at calligraphy. And there was a whole different way of practicing their medicine. And that what the modern world has done as say, no, we're not doing hot cuisine now. We're doing fast food, that we've created a medicine, a global medicine based on systematization, protocol derived, rapid practice like that. I think what we're seeing is the reaction to that now, 70 years later, the people going back to pre-TCM teachers and traditions in China say, well, what was lost? The fast food technique has been great. It's a global medicine now. Every country has practices acupuncture. But how do we bring back the spirit part to it? And uh, I think that, yeah, again, to encourage us to be open and innovative, because that is the nature of modern knowledge and modern culture, that we, we want to keep the fire, but realize that there are a number of different branches to create the integration. It's not a bad time to be alive and doing this work. Hmm. <laughs> well, hey, guys, thank you so much for taking some time today and hope all y'all's listening to this. Well, and especially if you're working in an integrative setting or a hospital, Maybe drop me a line. Let me know mm -hmm. what you're doing as well. This is a place for sure where our medicine can find its way into in, in a multitude of different ways. So thanks, guys. Really appreciate you being here today. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, thank you. That quote, tradition is the preservation of fire, not the worship of ashes. I find it to be a helpful reminder. It's helpful because like working on a car engine, it all only works as it's unfolding in this moment in time. Maybe like me, you also love the stories of the old doctors who had both the clarity and gumption to see things in a way that gave them a unique and helpful capacity to see things with fresh eyes and then do something that others wouldn't dare to do. It's not about being contrary for the sake of being different. That's not difficult. But being able to see the principles of the medicine we share arise in the novelty of the moment, that takes some practice. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.